All right. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 3. We're going to continue in this journey over the fall through the book of Acts. Uh, I don't say this often, but even this week as I prepared, I was particularly excited about Acts chapter 3. It's a text that I think most of us don't read when we read the book of Acts. We just kind of skip through it because uh, it's not one of the popular ones, but I think there's something powerful here that we're going to see from God today. So Acts chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1. As you're getting there, uh, let me begin with a little introduction, illustration, whatever. I I didn't come up with this, but I've heard it along the way, and I feel like it's really helpful. Uh, It goes like this. There's a kid walking down the beach, and uh, as he's walking down the beach, he sees like all of these sand, um, the starfish everywhere. And as he's walking, he starts throwing them back, right, one by one. And this man walks up to him, and he's like, hey, like this is pointless. There's thousands of them on the beach. You can't save them all. And the little kid says, no, I know I can't save them all, but I can save this one. And he throws it back. And he does it over and over again. To the man's astonishment, this is what the little kid sees, is that there's value in the individual one. And what I want to show you today is that's how the church functioned. When you look back at last week and we looked at Acts chapter 2, what you can see is the church cared deeply about individuals. Right? I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but that's what the church was about. In Acts chapter 2, we see that the church was about people. People were the mission. Okay, they didn't think about organizational structures. They didn't think about the big picture of all these things. They thought about individual people. And what they were willing to do is they were willing to leverage stuff for the sake of people. Listen, last week I told you there were six things that the church did well. And as they did these six things, God began to form this amazing community um, that, that, the, that the people in their community longed for. These people, they prayed together, they shared all their stuff together, they cared for one another, they reminded one another of the gospel, and they worshiped together, and the first church began to have this reputation around how people mattered. And again, I don't know if you know this or not, but when you look back at the history of the world, individuals or people tended not to matter. At least you mattered, but other people didn't matter. And what you see is that the very first church thought differently about people. They viewed people as important. And when they viewed people as important, when they thought about the individual, something began to take place and people began to notice. There was this guy named Aristides uh, who had to stand before the king of Rome to give, a, to give an account for what he saw of Christianity. And I want to read you really quickly <coughs> what this guy said about Christianity. Listen to what he says. He says, Now the Christians, O king, by going about and seeking to have, they have found truth. For they know and they trust in God, the maker of heaven and earth, who has no fellow. From him they receive those commandments which they have engraved on their minds and which they observe in the hope and the expectation of the world to come. They refuse to worship strange gods and they go their way in all humility and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them. They love one another. The widow's needs are not ignored and they rescue the orphan from the person who does, no, who does him violence. He who gives to him who has not ungrudgingly gives without boasting. When the Christians find a stranger, they bring him to their homes and they rejoice over him as a true brother. They do not call brother those who are bound by blood ties alone, but those who are brethren after the spirit and in God. When one of the poor passes from the world, each provides for his burial according to his ability." If they hear of any of the number of who are imprisoned or oppressed for the name of the Messiah, they all provide for his needs, and if possible, to redeem him, they set him free. If they find poverty in their midst, 
They do not spare, and they do not have food. Listen, here's what they said. They fast for two or three days in order that the needy person might be supplied with its necessities. They observe scrupulously the commandments of the Messiah, living honestly and soberly as the Lord has commanded them. Every morning and every hour they praise and thank God for his goodness to them and their food and their drink they offer as thanksgiving. Such, O king, is the commandment given to the Christian, and such is their conduct. This is a guy who's not a Christian back in the first century who's observed the way the church is acting, and he's given an account before the king as to what he sees. You see, today in Acts chapter 3, what I want you to see is that this is lived out. That the individual person matters. That you're going to see Peter and John, and they're going to walk by, and they're going to notice a guy at the temple who's begging to be healed. And as everybody else walks by them, they stop, and they care for them. You see, the very first miracle in the book of Acts that's done by the apostles, listen, is just an overflow of what the church already does. The church cares for people. They simply care for the needs of those around them. So in chapter 3, starting in verse 11, here's what you're going to see. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded as what they see, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Okay, so here's what you had to do is now you need to back up to verse 1, and let me show you who the he is, and I want to walk you through the story about what they were amazed about. So let me read for you, starting in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and he began to walk, and entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had just happened. You see, the he in verse 11 that Peter is referring to, the one that draws amazement and awe, is the paralyzed man that they encounter. Now check this out, because here's what I want you to see, is that this story of this individual actually helps to propel the gospel so that thousands more people come to faith. But as we do that, let me break this down for you. The first thing I want you to notice is this. And it's the particular detail that I think we miss often because we read so quickly that we miss it. Number one is notice this, is that they stopped. They stopped. Right before you go too far ahead, recognize that Peter and John were on their way to the temple. They were probably pretty busy. They had a lot going on. They just started a church that 3,000 people came to faith in where they're organizing it. They're going to the temple to pray. I mean, these guys probably didn't have a lot of margin in their life, right? They just started the first mega church ever. But they stopped. Why did they do that? Well, I think they did that because people mattered. There was a guy in need that was right in front of them, and they stopped. Can I ask you a question? This is a serious question. Is your life interruptible? Is it? Are you so important that you cannot stop? Or are you, are you like the type of person, seriously, that if you're on your way somewhere and you're in a hurry and you've got something to do, that you have the ability to stop? Seriously, if there's a need, 
my question for you is, can you stop? And here's what I wrote. Honestly, I don't think that that's a time question. I think that's a heart question. I really don't. Does your life allow you to stop? When you feel convicted about something, can you stop or do you just pass by like everybody else does? Honestly, here's some of the questions. Just think real practically. Maybe it's a mission trip. For us, we're going on four mission trips this year uh, and, and 2020, and my question is, does your life actually have the margin to where you, can, you, you feel convicted about the fact that you have the gospel, and there are so many people, billions of people all over the world who have never heard the name of Jesus, and do you have the margin in your life that you're able to stop, maybe even take the week that you were planning to go vacation and leverage that to go somewhere for the sake of the gospel? It might mean for some of you something like mentoring at the school. Right, right here at DeSanta Middle School, I told you guys this, that they've allowed us to jump in and mentor middle school students that are going through a tough time. What would it look like if you just stopped canceling a lunch once a week and you took your lunch break and you came over here for an hour and you realized that by you leveraging just a few minutes of your day, you can make an eternal impact on somebody's life? Can you stop? Right? Well, it might mean that some of you need to take time out of your week, and I'm just being honest with you, and, and you need to carve out the margin to go to a small group. For us, small groups at City Church are the lifeblood of our church. Our small groups gather together, they share meals together, they get connected together, they, they study the Bible together, they pray together, they, they serve together. Like They do all these things because for us, what we wanted to do was create an environment to where you can go to a group, listen, and we could intersect your life with the things you're already doing, and you don't have to add 14,000 different programs to your life, you just have to be intentional with the ones that you have. Can you stop? You see, Peter and John, they stopped. They met the need that was right in front of them, a need that presented itself to them when they were on their way to go places. That's how it works. That's how the gospel works. Actually, if you read the original language right, of Matthew 28, where it says, go and make disciples, it actually says, as you're going, make disciples, meaning we should be moving. I love the way David Platt addresses this passage. Listen to what he says. He says, those who are the most effective at reaching the many are those who are most passionate about reaching the one. Right? So we don't have this massive, grandeur picture of reaching everybody. We just simply love people well. When we're willing to stop, we have an audience that allows us to speak the gospel into their lives by simply caring for people. City Church, that's who I want us to be. I want us to be a church that's willing to stop. A church that's compassionate about the people in our city and the people in our neighborhoods. And when we walk by, um, hey, how are you doing? I'm fine. It just isn't good enough for us because we know that people's lives matter. I want us to be a people that stop. I want the city of Alpharetta or wherever you come from to recognize that our church is here and that we're better or that our city's better because we're here, right? Does this school need help? I want us to say, we will help. Is there a foster care system here that needs a champion? I want us to say, we'll do that. Does the city need something? We are the first question to say, we will meet that need. I don't really care what it is. It doesn't really matter how big or small we are. If we are people in this room that take the ownership and the responsibility to say, as we go, we will stop and we will meet needs. Can I tell you that you will make one of the greatest impacts you, the world could ever imagine simply because people are important. People are the mission. That's what we say around here. People are more important than policies. My question for you is, do you view people as a statistic or do you know their name? Because here's what happens, right? If I talk about people as a statistic, you fill in the blank of whatever caricature you have of somebody. Maybe they're black people or white people or Asian people or whatever. Whatever blank you fill in, if you stop viewing them as a caricature and you start viewing them as John and Jim and Allison and whatever name, their lives, their humanity begins to take shape and those become people. That's what happens. They stopped. Notice this. Next. 
Remember, this guy is a beggar, right? He's begging. He's sitting at the temple, and he's trying to get money from Peter and John, but Peter and John don't have any money. Peter looks at him, and, and the old King Jimmy says, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have to you, I'll give you in the name of Jesus. So he reaches out his hand, and he tells him to get up. But don't miss this. Peter doesn't give him money, okay? Here's the detail most people miss is Peter doesn't actually even give him healing. When you read this, Peter doesn't heal him. What does he offer him? He offers him Jesus, right? And Jesus heals him. Now think about that. Think about that massively important detail and then think about being the paralyzed man. The paralyzed man is sitting here at the temple and, and you know because everybody recognizes him that this isn't his first go around there. He's been there for a long time and these random guys walk up to him and they tell him, hey, I know you're begging for money. I don't have money. I don't even have healing. What I have is Jesus and if you'll take Jesus, listen, your life will change. Now imagine this. Imagine the amount of faith that it would take for this man to exercise for him to reach out his hand and grab on to Peter in faith and believe in Jesus. You see, one of the things that we often miss is this healing here has nothing to do with a matter of physical healing, even though that's massively important. This healing has everything to do with the exercise of faith that this man has in Jesus's ability to save him. That's the picture, all right? This guy, being a beggar, he received way more than what he could have ever asked or imagined. He was looking for money, and he received an entirely new life. Get this, I'm trying to paint a picture for you because here's what the Bible wants you to see, I think. I, want, I think the Bible is trying to paint a picture that you are the beggar, that I'm the beggar. That when we ask God for things, listen, I think that we ask God for things that are far too small. That we look to God and we look at our immediate need that's right in front of us and God looks at you and I and he says, do you not understand that I want to blow up every category that you have? That I have something for you that you can't even begin to imagine that is bigger than anything that you would ever ask for. You want a few dollars? I want to change your life. Right? You want, you want healing? I want to change your eternity. Right? So do you get the picture? Do you get that this is what we're trying to paint for you? Acts chapter 3 wants you to see is that you are the one. And that as you approach God for healing, listen, don't ask God to always fix your temporary things. Ask him for the eternal. Now, here, hear me say this, and I'm going to show you this in a little bit. God does actually care about your temporary things too. But God has something much bigger in mind here. See, what you and I are supposed to come away with is the fact, listen, that you and I are poor and desperate. That we need more than just a quick fix. Listen, we need to be healed. Right? We're supposed to realize that we are helpless and that without God looking down on us in his mercy and grace, we would be just going on to the next temporary thing. After all, that's what happens to this guy, right? When Peter and John heal him, he experiences something that we all take for granted. Think about what he experienced. Not only did he experience an eternal change in his life, but he actually got to walk. How, how many of you guys, show of hands, woke up this morning thinking, gosh, I praise God that I get to use my legs today? None of us. Right? The things that we take for granted is something that changed his life. Again, I don't want you to miss this. The, the, the physical pain that he was going through was pointing to a spiritual reality of all of our lives. That there's a spiritual blindness that we have that keeps us from being able to walk into the newness of life that God has for us. So when Peter heals this man, he doesn't just change his circumstances. He changes everything about the guy's life. And that is a picture of the gospel. That's what Jesus does for us. And that's what I want you to see today, that this is why God does what he does. is because it's not just a picture of a physical reality. It's a picture of a spiritual reality. So let me ask you this. And, you know, I'm a little ahead because like, I've read it and studied it, but why did God heal this person in the first place? Listen, answer, to put his glory on display. I want to show you this, okay? 
What you'll see here is God, listen, God has a bigger plan than just what's right in front of us. Sometimes God uses, and this is hard, and I want to like, really dig in here for a second. Sometimes God uses our suffering to bring in an even bigger, amazing picture of his glory to the world. Right? God could have done anything he wanted in this time. God, the guy could have just woke up and started walking, but God uses this picture of his temporary healing to bring salvation to an entire city. What if, what if God allows you and I to go through certain things? Because by doing that, he puts on display something that's even bigger for the world to see. Think about it. When you suffer, listen, and God miraculously heals you, think, think about what happens with that people begin to ask questions, right? Think about how God does this all the way through the Bible. In the book of Acts, there's this guy named Saul. Okay, he's a terrorist. Like, I think we, we often forget that. Your, your buddy Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, was a terrorist, literally killing Christians. And God miraculously heals him on this thing called the Damascus Road, where he blinds him, brings him to faith. And then even the disciples, they were scared of this guy. And this guy begins to turn the world upside down, and people begin to notice. I heard this week in the news that Kanye West became a Christian. Like, whoa, mind blown, right? And that he's doing Christian concerts all over the country now. Can you imagine the platform that God uses through that? Now, again, those are particularly like weird things that you see, but imagine like that moment that you get healed of cancer and the way that you live. John Piper wrote an article, a pastor in Minneapolis, and he says, don't waste your cancer. Like, don't waste the opportunity to live in your suffering in such a particular way that people come to faith. I love the way Tim Keller, who was diagnosed with cancer, he wrote a book about suffering. And listen to what he says here. This is so insightful. Christianity teaches, contra to fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Christ, uh, contra to Buddhism, suffering is real. Contra to karma, suffering is often unfair. Contra to secularism, suffering is meaningful. There's a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into a more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. That's the picture. God often takes the broken things of this world and he uses them in such a way that he molds them so that the world or the people around you can see not only how you live in your glory, if you will, but even how you live in your suffering. Honestly, passages like this should drive us to a point to where we have such a faith in God that the next time we suffer, we stop asking why and we start asking God how. How are you using my circumstances to bring glory to yourself? Right, write this down. Our problems, they shrink when we put them in the right perspective. They really do. The, the hardest thing that you have to do is you have to step outside of yourself and you have to try to see the bigger picture, and this is what the Bible does for us. Right? Maybe today you need to recognize or you need to be reminded that God is bigger than your issues, that God cares about you and that your circumstances do matter, but God has a bigger play at hand. Right? I've told you this before, but I think about my three-year-old, who uh, she's actually about to be six now. That's how long I've been using this illustration. We used to go check the mail together, and our mailbox was on the other side of the street, and she'd run down to the end of the street, and I would tell her. Like, I'd threaten her life. I'd say, Emma, if you run across that street, you are never, ever, ever, ever going to go check the mail again. And she'd run as fast as she can. She'd get to the end, and she'd cross her arms, and she'd be mad. Why? Because Emma thought she was smarter than I am. Right? She thought that she could see the world better than I can. Now, imagine that, because I, I mean, I'm not being arrogant, but I think I'm smarter than my three-year-old was. Right? Now, 
Here's what she couldn't see. She couldn't see that if a car came and she ran across the street, that would be the end of her. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible that I'm smarter than my three-year-old? Don't answer that. Is it possible that God is infinitely smarter than you? Is it possible that you just simply can't see the world like he does? That God actually does have a bigger play. And you, like a three-year-old, is supposed to trust your daddy. Honestly, the question is, is do you love God enough to just simply trust him? Right? Listen to me. God cares for you. He proved that you care for you. I love this. Romans 5, 8. He proved it. God, listen, God showed his love for us. That while we were still in our sins, while your life was still messy, Christ died for you. Does suffering suck? Yes. Does God care? You better believe it. He proved it. How did he prove it? He proved it by dying in your place to take care of your ultimate suffering. Friends, that's the point, is we need to practice and remind each other of the goodness of God. Listen, it's possible. It's possible that God is using your circumstances to not only bring you to faith, but to bring everybody else around you to faith. Well, let me ask you a question. Are you wasting strategic opportunities in your life to walk through the pain that you're walking through that God could be using for his glory? The only way that you can answer that question is if you really trust God. That's what you see happening here. Verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, this is the paralyzed man, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Right? So here's what happens, right? Peter just, they just... Um, heal this paralyzed man, and he's probably, they're hanging out inside the temple. People are pretty amazed, and Peter takes this as an opportunity to share the gospel with the people, right? The, 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 you see this, like, like, can you imagine, right? We walk over here, and you come up to the school, and, and there's this dude that's been sitting outside the school for years, and he's paralyzed. He can't move. He's got a cup in his hand, and he's asking you for money. Day by day by day, you walk by him, you walk by him, you ignore him, and then one day, he's sitting in the front row, and you're kind of like, whoa, that, that, that's that cat that was out there. Like, how do he get up? How do he walk in here? Right? Well, you're like, yo, I, there, there's no way. And, and Peter's like, listen, you sit down for a second. I got a story for you. Right, I can tell you what happened. You see that? Look at verse 13. He begins to tell him. All right, here's what he says. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. When he had decided to release him, you denied the holy and righteous one. And you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. In his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man his perfect health in the presence of you all. all right, picture it. Peter starts talking, and John's like, you might want to chill out with all that kill stuff, right? Like, bro. Like, this is an opportunity. You can, you can actually bring people to faith, and you're over here calling them murderers. Like, chill out a little bit. And Peter's like, nah. He's throwing truth bombs at him. He's like, no. Like, you guys, the thing that you think, you think that's miraculous? Don't you remember what just happened? Don't you remember just a few weeks ago, like, there was this dead guy, like, dead, dead, like, really dead that, oh, by the way, you guys killed don't you, you remember that guy? Like he was walking around, people were getting healed. Next thing you know, you put to him on a cross and, and you killed the guy and that dead guy that you killed. Um, if I didn't tell you, you killed him. Don't you remember that guy? Like he came to, like he rose from the dead three days later. By the way, you know that's true because our buddy Paul, who used to be a terrorist, he even writes about this in 1 Corinthians where he says all of you guys were even there. Like you think this is a miracle. Don't you remember the dead guy who came back to life? Yeah, that's a miracle. Remember that guy? This is what Peter's doing. 
See, he's, he's looking at them and he's asking them the question. He's like, you've seen the glory of God on display. Why are you amazed by this? Why are you amazed by these small things whenever you've seen that God himself came back to life? Seriously, right? This, this might be tough, okay? And, and this is something I battled as I wrote this this week. But here, I want to ask you, are, are you more amazed when something happens in this world, temporary healing, than you are when somebody comes to faith? Honestly, this is what Peter, Peter's looking back at the, at the history of the world. And he's saying, look, there's a physical healing here. That's, that's good and that's important. But don't miss this. This guy wasn't healed because of something I did. He was healed because of a guy who rose from the dead, and that guy saved him. Right? Think about it. That's the miracle. Jesus is telling him the greater miracle, the one that we all need, started with a guy. This guy created everything, and he put on flesh. Miracle number one, God of the universe who created all things, literally put on flesh and became a human being that was subjected to his own people. Again, I think we become so inoculated by Christianity that we miss how amazing this is. That God himself, who does not need anything from us, we, don't, we owe God everything. He put on flesh and he subjected himself to us. He died in our place. He did everything necessary to save us. And he did that because he loved us. God became a man. And three days later, that same guy, he rose from the dead. Peter looks at them and he says, I don't think you get it. It's not about a paralyzed man. It's about a God who loved you so much that while you were yet in your sins, died for you. I need you to hear me say this, and I want to say it lovingly. Listen to me. You are not bad people that need a healing. According to the Bible, we are dead people that need to be resurrected. And that's what the gospel offers. You see, the greater power, the power, the same power that rose the paralyzed man from the dead was the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. It's the power of God working in and through his people to bring you to faith. Honestly, that's what Acts chapter 3 is pointing to. This is what Peter is saying. Don't be impressed by the little things. Some of you in this room need to be impressed by the fact that God loves you. And he loves me too. And why does he do that? Is it because I did anything necessary to, to earn that love? No. According to the Bible, we're not that. We're not just good people trying to live a better life. We're dead people that need to be raised to life. And Jesus Christ has done that for us. See, God has a much bigger picture in mind, and that is our eternity. Listen, he wants your life. This is what I've been praying for all week is that some of you in this room, maybe for the very first time, would understand this, that you don't have to keep living in religious conformity. You can actually just cling to Jesus like this paralyzed man did and receive life because he's already done everything necessary to save you. So here's the question. Do you believe that? Because here, God heals. He delights in healing. You see that he healed the paralyzed man, but he has something even bigger in store for you, just like the beggar. Because in a month, I promise you, the beggar would just become the normal guy who's walking around and he would have his next problem like you and I do. Again, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I have. I've received something absolutely incredible and then six months later, I forget about that and I go back to my own woes. That's not the point. The point is that God wants to save your soul and he wants to change your trajectory for all of history. And that's what Peter's showing them. Keep going with me in verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted ignorantly as did your rulers. But God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer. He thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, 
whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will rise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Let me paraphrase. There's a lot going on there. Here's all he's saying. It's all about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. From the very beginning until now, everything was pointing to Jesus. You see, Peter has done this in Acts chapter 2, and now he's doing Acts chapter 3. He's connecting the dots for you. He's showing you that Jesus Christ was the one that was talked about in Genesis chapter 1, all the way through the 66 books of the Bible, that every single prophet was talking about Jesus. Right? When you see the God, that God made a promise to Abraham in, Acts, in Genesis chapter 12 when he says, hey, look up at the stars of the sky and you'll have descendants that will belong to you that go beyond numbers of counting. Listen to me. When he looked up at the stars, do you know what Abraham saw? He saw you. I think we often miss that. Sometimes whenever I go out and look at the stars at night, listen, I want you to do this, is go out with a fresh perspective that thousands of years ago, one of those stars represented you. It was pointing to Jesus that Jesus one day would create a new family. He would create a family of people that would be uh, centered around the gospel because Jesus would pay the penalty that you can never pay. Right? When God led the people out of slavery and he looked at Moses, you know what he said? And he says, I'm going to bring back another prophet, Jesus, who one day will not just take his people out of a physical slavery, but the bondage that keeps you enslaved to whatever sin that you have. One day, I'm going to bring him back and he is going to take and he's going to depart, he's going to part the sin that, that keeps you separated from me so there's a path right between God and you. This is what he's showing you. Every prophet of the Old Testament was pointing to a greater prophet, a prophet that would be perfect and that would live and die the perfect life that you could never live so that you could be with him, right? They were pointing to Jesus, all of them. They were speaking, that, that Jesus was speaking a better word than they were. Whenever they would talk about the coming of Christ, Jesus would say, it is finished, and that ultimate word would bring you healing. When the priests would come to God and they would make sacrifices of an animal for a human and that wouldn't be enough, they were pointing not to an animal sacrifice but ultimately to a guy who they would say would be the Lamb of God that would die in your place, an ultimate sacrifice, a man, a perfect spotless man named Jesus Christ who would die in your place and who would come and he would be the perfect sacrifice so that he could be the priest that mediates between you and God so that forever and ever and ever you can come into God's presence. When there were kings in the Old Testament and they looked at these imperfect kings that would mess up over and over and over again. They weren't pointing to a, a natural king on earth like we have today, even in our kings. We're, they're pointing to an ultimate reality of Jesus who would be a perfect and righteous and good king who would stand in your place and who would lovingly care for you and bring justice and mercy. Listen, the entire Bible, the entire Old Testament, the entire New Testament is pointing to a new reality of a guy named Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what he's telling them, that every healing, everything that you see is pointing to Jesus. That's the miracle. City Church, I want you to see this. The miracle of the Bible is not that God would heal a paralyzed man. No, it's that he would move history. 
He would work through history, redemptive history, to start a story that he would work through people and places. And listen, God himself would step outside of the picture so that when you and I are walking through life and we don't understand what's happening, we would look to this Bible and he would show you, did you not see that over thousands of years I was creating a history to where I could redeem you and I have not stopped yet. I'm still in the business of doing this. History, if you've ever heard of this way, is his story. It's all about God and what God is doing. You see, God cares. He cares deeply. He cares about your temporary healings. I promise you he does. He shows this over and over again, right? But God cares even more about your eternity, your eternal destiny. And this is why Peter says in verse 19, repent. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing will come in the presence of the Lord, and that he may send his Christ, the appointed one, Jesus, Check this out. If you were here, you remember a few weeks ago, I told you what this word repent means. It means to literally turn away or to change your mind about something, right? This is what he's saying. He's saying that the very first miracle, although it was a physical healing, was pointing to this spiritual reality that God would do something. He would offer you new life. And because Jesus would do that, listen, here's, here's what he tells him. If you see this, if you've experienced this, if you've tasted this, there's no way you can go back, right? So Repent. This is what he tells them. It's finished. Your sins have been paid for. They've been blotted out. There's a time of refreshing, but the only way that that's accessed is if you can come to the end of yourself and realize maybe, 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 maybe there's something bigger than me out there. Maybe God actually knows what he's doing. And maybe the hurt that I'm experiencing, maybe he hasn't left me alone. Maybe he really is working all the things out for the good of those who love him. That's what the gospel does. The gospel changes your perspective. Right? Do you want to be healed? Really, do you really want to be healed? Listen, this entire passage is pointing to that reality, that God wants to heal you. He wants to change you. So if you want to be healed, you have to recognize a few things. And I want to get really practical. Number one is this. You have to recognize that you are the paralyzed man. That's, that's where it all begins. Right? You are hopeless and helpless without Christ. That's what it's pointing to. You know this, Right? You may think that you have something to offer, but again, this passage wants you, to, wants you to realize that even the things that you think you have to offer in the economy, God, are nothing. I, I, used to, um, I used to be like a master Monopoly player. Me and my brothers, we'd get together. If you've ever played Monopoly, we'd play all night, and we, I'd try to stack up all these things, hotels and houses and everything, and the game would only ever end. Now, if you're a master Monopoly player, you know this, when somebody gets ticked off and flips the board over, Right? That's the only way. Like, it is the never-ending game. But here's what would happen. It's like I'd take all my money, and I'd be like, yeah, I'd rub it in. I'd walk around. I'd be the master, like 12 years old, thinking that I got it all, all together. Now, imagine. Imagine that if I took my Monopoly money, and I went to SunTrust today to go try to deposit it into our bank account. I'm like, I got it all. They'd look at me, and they think I'm silly. Why? Because in the economy of Monopoly, I'm the man. In the economy of SunTrust, I'm still broke and poor. Think about it. That's how too many of us look at our life. You, you might have things. You might have an education. You might have a good job. You might have a good family. But if I'm just being honest with you, in the economy of God, that's nothing. None of us. All of our good things, according to the Bible, is like filthy rags. But, but God. See, God being rich in mercy would die in your place. And here's what it tells you. Guys, you don't need any of that stuff. You're like playing with Monopoly money. He says, I've got something even greater for you than that. I've got eternity. And when God looks at you, I, I, I just think we don't have to come to God that way. 
I think we have to come to God as the beggar, the, the paralyzed man that sits at the foot of the cross, that sits at the foot of Jesus, and, and we recognize who we are. And when we recognize who we are, listen to what God does. He heals us. You see, when Peter, when Peter goes up and he heals this guy, listen, the, the, the paralyzed man, do you know how he was healed? It wasn't that Peter had power. It's that he reached up and grabbed the hand. He exercised faith. My question for you is, do you believe that you're the paralyzed man that just needs to reach up and exercise faith? Or, if you're like me, does the majority of your life, listen, is it created in such a way that you don't need God? That I have good plans, that I know what I'm doing, that I make enough money, that I don't have to worry about my next meal or any of those things, and that my entire life, functionally speaking, can exist without God? If so, you're probably playing Monopoly money. Because you don't realize, like a three-year-old that goes to check the mail, that there's even something bigger going on than that. And until we step outside of ourselves and we realize who we are, listen, I think we miss it. Now, let me address something really quickly. Does God actually care about suffering? I think that's an important question. Because you see here, I'm, I keep telling you there's a greater reality, but listen, quite, quite the contrary to what you may think, God cares deeply. Did you ever notice that all the way through the Bible, God stops? He's not like, hey, Jesus isn't walking through the Gospels, and he's like, hey, bro, like, I know you're, I know you're suffering, but it's going to be quick. It's going to be good. Just wait. Wait till you die. You're going to be all right. No. He stops. Listen, all the way through the Bible, God doesn't say hang in there. He cares deeply about you. All right? God cares about your suffering. And here's, here's how I know it, because I've seen a lot of it, and I know how God works. We have people in this church that are physicians that went to school for 10, 15 years to be trained so that they can heal you. And don't think that God doesn't work through those people. I have friends that are working on a PhD at Princeton right now to, to create new drugs that can help heal people of diseases. Listen, God is using medicines and, and clean water and technologies. He's using you all over the world to bring glory to his name and to change the world and to heal people. So if, if, you, if you don't realize this, listen, God is doing crazy and miraculous things to heal all the time. Don't believe me? Get in a time machine and go back a thousand years ago and have a common cold and see the difference of what God has done continually to move the world in such a way that we live in the safest, easiest, healthiest place that's ever existed. God is still in the business of healing. But, but don't miss, don't miss his ultimate purpose. Verse 21, whom heaven, listen, whom heaven must receive, he's talking about Jesus, until the time of restoring all things. If you underline things, that's a big one. To which God had spoken by the mouth of his holy prophet long ago. You catch what God's really in the business of doing? Restoring all things. Restoring all things back to what? Perfection. See, the miracles that is pointing to a day, listen, that God is going to do an ultimate healing. He is going to change all things. Did you ever notice that not, not only does God care deeply about your personal suffering, but I think that God widens the lens and he wants you to see that there's something even bigger happening here. That in Genesis 1 and 2, where, where you see this perfect reality and then suffering and sin enters the world, you look that history is pointing to a redemptive day when God will come back and he will change everything. I love this passage because this passage, if you look at it closely, is pointing to Isaiah 35, which, which, which is a picture of when God will come back one day and he's going to restore all things. Listen to what it says. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Here it is. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. Notice it's the same exact language. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That's the point. God cares so deeply about suffering that one day he is going to eradicate it completely from this world. That there will be a day when there will not be any more suffering anymore. And when that day comes, we will leap 
like deers, in joyful surrender to God. Listen, your suffering, brothers and sisters, as hard as it is, is still temporary. And that should give you hope. This is huge. God cares deeply about you. I love Craig Rochelle. He's a pastor in Oklahoma. He said this this week. When you are ready to quit, try to remember this. It takes a death to have a resurrection. It takes a pain to have progress. It takes hurt to have healing. It takes struggle to have a story worth telling. And it takes a trial to have a testimony. Listen to me. When you realize that your suffering is only temporary and you realize that you are the paralyzed man, I promise you this is the perspective that God will give you. That one day you will leap like a deer. One day all the bad things of this world will become undone. And one day we will stand before the glorious king forever. And that has to start with number two. Number two, you have to believe in a greater power. You have to believe in a greater power. This is the question, verse 23. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Let me ask you this. Are you listening? Are you listening? That's a really important question. Because here's the deal. God has an opinion about Jesus. He's not neutral on the subject. As hard as that might be, he has an opinion. He tells him his opinion. He says, one day, one day I'm going to heal all things, but one day those who don't believe there's going to be a problem. Are you listening? That's the question is, do you believe that there's even a greater power that's ready to save you? Do you believe that God cares more about your spiritual healing than he does about your physical temporary healing? Do you believe that you're more than just a body? That you have this component called a soul and that Jesus cares deeply about that? Because this is Jesus, this is Peter's point. God didn't just want to heal your body, although he will. God cares deeply about your soul. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I want to show you how this connects in just a second, but number three, real quick. This all leads to an action step, and that's repent. Repent and receive the refreshment that comes from being in the presence of the Lord. See, when you repent, notice what he says. Listen and take Jesus' name. When you repent, listen, here's what's happening. You take the name of Jesus into yourself. You acknowledge who he is. Notice this over and over and over again. He tells him how he's healed. Look at this, verse 6. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus. Right? Verse 16, in the name, by faith, in the name, in his name, he has made this man strong. This is what happens. Jesus makes you strong. So let me give you an illustration of how this works. When you repent, here's what you're doing. Um, few years ago now, Allison and I got married, my wife, right? And when we got married, here, here's what ends up happening. We walk down the aisle and we say, I do to one another. And from that moment forward, my new wife has my name. She's a low. And for the rest of her life, she gets all the privileges that I have in me, all my money, all my debt, all everything that comes with me, she gets and I get everything that comes with her. Now, obviously I got the better end of that deal. Like that's not even a question. But did you know that's what happens when you come to faith? You get the name of Jesus. Listen, when you come to faith, it's like your wedding day where repentance is like saying, I do to Christ. It's you coming to faith. It's you coming to Christ and you're saying, okay, God, I know, I know, I know that you've done everything necessary to save me. I want your name. And in the name of Christ, you get all the rights and all the privileges of the king. So when you see your life from that point forward, what ends up happening is you are no longer who you used to be. You belong to another. And that's the point. 
The point of every healing in this Bible and the point of every healing you'll ever see, the point of the entire Bible is you, like the paralyzed man, have to come to faith in Christ. And by you coming to faith, you go to the altar and you look as you have your husband, as the way the Bible describes it, and you come together and you look at him and you say, I want to be yours. And from that moment forward, you get all the rights and all the privileges of the king. My question is, as we continue in this series, do you realize that God cares about you? You're the one. Where billions of people are dying a Christless eternity, it's almost like Jesus is walking by and he's flipping you back in. And somebody looks at our church and says, you know you can't change the world. And you look back at him and you say, yeah, but I can change my neighbor's life. And I can do this. And I can do that. See, because some of you, some of you have walked into this room and you're not really willing to admit it, but you're the paralyzed man. Some of you, your, your marriage is hanging on by a string, and you know that. You, I mean, you know, when somebody comes up and says, how are you doing? It's okay to, like, you, you think you can fake that, but you know deep in your heart that things are hard. Some of you, and I know your story because we talk about it, you went to the doctor a few weeks ago, and you're still waiting on the diagnosis, and you're struggling. Others of you, listen to me, others of you are like the paralyzed man, and you sit at the temple every single day, and you ask for a cheeseburger when God's offering you a steak. You ask for such a small thing when he gives you eternity. So be honest with me. Honest with me. Just cards on the table. Some of you need to repent. Some of you finally need to stop trying to live your own life and realize that God has done everything necessary to save you. That he loves you and that he wants to heal you. And his healing is more than just the temporary satisfactions of today. But he wants to change your eternity. He wants to change your perspective, your joy. He wants you to zoom out and see, guys, I have a plan. And my plan wasn't just to restore the entire world, although that's part of it, but my plan is to restore your life. The question for you is, will you do that today? Will this be the day that you just stop? You stop asking for temporary things and you look up and like Peter looks at you and he looks you right in the eyes and he says, hey, I don't have that but what I have can change your world forever and ever and ever. I have something priceless. I have the name of Jesus, and you can have it. And you can have the rights to the king forever and ever and ever. If you'll simply just ask, that's all you have to do.